Chapter Eight of Find the Woman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Find the Woman by Gillette Burgess. Chapter Eight. The Subway Express. Concerning the philosophic theory of profanity as an art and its practical application as a science, and the doings of Fenton's ex-master. With a grim smile upon his lips and a great strain off his mind, John Fenton emerged stealthily from the side entrance of the Hotel Caxton and walked rapidly toward Times Square. His adventure had been like a dream. Like a dream, it had been silly, but splendid. What he had been through that evening, since first he approached Times Square, as he was approaching now. He had a dime in his pocket as he walked into the lobby of the Hotel Knickerbocker to collect his thoughts and lay his plans. Should he try again to get the octoroon on the telephone and leave it to chance to get back from downtown? He sat down at a table and looked at his dime thoughtfully, then grimly decided to leave it to fate. Fate evidently had him in mind that night, so let come what would. Heads for precaution and the saving of five cents for his return, tails for communication with the octoroon, and luck. He tossed up the coin, and it fell tails up. So mote it be. He walked to a drug store and rang up the King William Hotel. Miss Green had registered, said the clerk, but did not answer. Selah. The fates would provide, and with a smile on his lips, like a desperate traveller who casts himself into a stream without a ford, hoping to get to the other side safely. Fenton plunged into the subway and took a local train to the Grand Central Station, where he transferred to a downtown express. He must get to the St. Paul building. What he could accomplish there, how he could possibly recover the jewels, he had no idea. But once launched upon this adventurous emprise, he was determined to see it through and make what fight he could. It worried him that he had to work in the dark, with no help or guidance. But he had no choice. There were only two passengers in the car he entered. One was a stout man-o'-war Jackie, considerably under the influence of a joyous shore-leave, the other a globular, puffy gentleman with a piratical moustache, which he seemed to be continually eating. Fenton sank into a reverie, and his thoughts wandered like a homing dove to Belcharmion. Who was she? What had she intended to say to him? What mysterious fate was bringing them continually together? Suddenly he awoke from his musing to find the train had stopped. He waited for several minutes, and it did not start. Local after local passed them by, with the exasperating way that locals have of beating the express when the track is blocked. He went forward to speak to the guard, and found the door locked. There was some trouble ahead. The sailor began to swear. His impatience grew more and more profane. He would lose his ship. He would be rebuked. He didn't care so much for the money, but to think that he had to be at the mercy of a landlubber's hole in the ground. All this embellished with horrid adjectives. Fenton smiled and returned to his seat. The puffy gentleman came over and asked what was the matter. Fenton didn't know. Well, they had to make the best of it. The man-o'-war's man became more and more abusive. Again, the man with the fierce whiskers remarked that one had to make the best of it. Nobody could hurry a subway train. One couldn't put a burr under its tail to make it jump, you know. When he was not chewing his moustache, he was wiping it off with the flat of his hand. That Jackie can sure swear some, said Fenton finally. Swear? Nonsense. Profanity is a fine art. 
that illiterate chap knows only the merest rudiments well they're good anglo-saxon rudiments anyway fenton said smiling at his friend's serious tone hm anglo-saxon it takes an arab to really swear you can get a real sensation in semitic we're afraid to really use english to its greatest effect queer isn't it how we are the domination of language we have certain words that are arbitrarily considered vulgar and we so-called civilized people have come to the point when the only way we know to emphasize our sentiments is by spicing them with impropriety if that is the correct method why the spanish have done the best of all the english come next perhaps especially the elizabethan literature great power of invective they had look at john webster but lord think of the french and the germans child's play sir mere child's play how can an intelligent man consider he gains force by mentioning a pot of thunder or a sacred colour or calling upon the thunder and lightning oh the secret of it is sacrilege i fancy said fenton willing to humour him men like to defy higher powers it shows courage is thousand pots a higher power the stranger replied no sir the basis of all profanity is sound the appeal is not to the mind but to the ear i defy you to name a single oath modern or ancient that is not euphonious that doesn't have an oral magnificence wait a minute we will probably have to stay here a while i'll tell you a story to prove what i mean there's one man in brooklyn who has perfected profanity and made a science of it here we go now said fenton i guess that was only a fuse blown out i once knew a man he began the train had started but the little man had already started also and as station after station was slowly passed he narrated his story the affiliated non-cursers parade do you know brooklyn is one of the queerest places in the whole world all sorts of strange uncanny things happen when you once cross the bridge you're in a new world your brain changes you begin to see things pink i live in brooklyn myself in some ways it's as good as living abroad i imagine mars when they have an election on is something like the borough of brooklyn they call it the city of churches ha huh, i call it the city of brain kinks nobody really knows anything definite about the town ask a cop how to get to flatbush park terrace and he doesn't know nobody knows if you get there you'll never find the way back you wouldn't believe half the things that are true about brooklyn ever hear of the king's county croquet club that meets at prospect park i thought not what did i tell you what sane person would believe that there was a city in the united states that played croquet nowadays championship games too ain't it awful why there's a chess club that you can see working at the job in full daylight from the brooklyn l believe me some of these games last for years at a stretch like a chinese drama men grow old during a single gambit then there's the flatbush bride's cooking class can you beat that think of the biscuits like your wife used to make why mister i know human beings over there that sleep under violet glass all night to cure sore eyes the banks fail regularly every year they have a children's procession in may nobody knows what for they sell real estate that's under water and you have to get a glass-bottomed boat to find your front yard no if you're a brooklynite when you come back from work at night you have no idea what your wife's been elected to during the day 
It's all one cooperative, coeducational madhouse. But the one craziest thing of all is the affiliated non-cursers. Ever heard of it? No? I thought not. Well, a lot of religious highbrows a few years ago formed this society to suppress swearing. Every member is pledged never to use a cuss word and to frown on all blasphemy and sundry. Oh, when the executive committee gets into a good fat row, it's worth being present. They have to mix Volapik and Esperanto. Well, the president of the society this year is old Dr. Hopbottom. What's the matter? Ever heard of him? An old yellow-skinned, goat-bearded quack doctor. One of these psalm-singing skinflints, you know. This year he proposed a parade of the affiliated non-cursers, and the idea caught on great. It was a big show, but Brooklyn thought nothing of it. Why, over there, when the circus comes to town, they have to paint the elephants in scotch plaids and put side-whiskers on the zebras before anyone will turn round and look. People in Brooklyn see too much woosley stuff every day to be surprised at anything, so the parade didn't attract much attention. At first, they had all the schoolchildren out, little girls in white muslin and blue ribbons, boys in pink sailor suits with little white flags, PDQYM, the social uplifters, the sons of Jehu, the ethical army, the ancient order of Gohevians, the mystic livers, the anti-dope fiends, the shupum pupum, and everything. Dr. Hopbottom certainly rounded up a good bunch of non-cursers. He had them in platoons with banners and badges and brass bands and decorated drays and marshals with batons, just like a regular procession of the native sons of the Golden West. He was at the head of the parade on a white horse, with a tall hat tied round with white ribbons, like Napoleon crossing the Delaware, solemn as the Archangel Gabriel. Pleased? Why, the doctor was one broad, voluptuous grin. He took off his hat right and left, regular, every block. So far, so good. The parade was a great success, till it got to a given point down by the borough hall. Then came the big wind. There was an ex-sailor named Gil Hooligan driving up a side street on a dray loaded with railroad iron. Bingety, bang, slam, smash, rumble, rattle, zip, clattery, ding. You know how a load of steel rails can yelp when they're properly loaded on a truck. Gil Hooligan had four big black Percherons, and he had an idea he was operating an ancient Roman chariot, and the whole world had to get out of his way. He tried to drive smack through the middle of the procession, but the non-swearing enthusiasts wouldn't have it. They sat tight. Then for a few minutes there was a sprightly duel of verbiage and diction. Gilhooligan went at them with a thousand frenetic figures of speech, and the white-ribbon purists came back with a lot of sterilized and highly perfumed talk on the other side of the question. Gilhooligan got rather the best of it. Fiddlesticks and Oh Bother and Mercy Me had no show at all with the way he handled English. Why, he swung eighteen-syllabled oaths round by the tail, hitting right and left. But still, they didn't let him through. The little boys yelled, Oh, Pickles! and the ladies attacked him with, Ain't he horrid? Of course, they couldn't go farther, though for a little while several resignations from the society were momentarily expected. Gilhooligan talked to them the way an army driver pets a mule. 
yes the gift of tongues certainly descended upon gilhooligan till the air was a deep exquisite magenta for miles around you could actually smell his language at last the news travelled from one sunday school to another clear up to the head of the procession where dr hopbottom was straddling his stately steed when he found out what was doing he turned that white horse and came back toward borough hall at a wild bull gallop the white ribbons streaming out from his top hat and his whiskers flying it was like general sheridan twenty miles away it was like paul revere it was like the ride from ghent to aix you say you've heard of dr hopbottom well then you know what an ingenious old crank he is of course he doesn't swear it's wicked but he had long ago figured it out like i told you what was the psychological motive for curses brainstorms have just got to happen sometimes and what a man needs at such times is a good satisfactory bunch of exclamations to hurl into the mess being a scientific man he knew not only the cause but the remedy so it was easy he invented his own innocuous expletives whenever the time came well he came galloping down toward the row gilhooligan's profanity carried for about thirteen city blocks so that by the time the doctor got within range he had his fires lighted and steam up he reined up and let out a stream of talk something like this what the hypophenyl tribrompropionic hiatus is the purple matter here anyway why the syncopated senegambian highball don't you move on what a thousand voices answered a thousand trembling hands pointed angrily to gilhooligan the doctor two-stepped his horse up to the irishman you get the deoxidized dalmatian out of the way here you epigrammatic blastoderm do you hear gilhooligan broke loose again i can't really quote his speech aright shorn of its linguistic splendors it read something like move your blankety blank dashed line of unquotable objects open and let me get through you blanked dash of an indescribable animal i want to get by the doctor then proceeded to get mad he shook his fist at gilhooligan and yelled see here you clavodeltoid compresbyterial gal ravaging gonopteryx do you think i'll take any of your panspermatic post eocene retromorphosed labefaction you inebriant heliometric holland shaker you you giscoderm you green gilled sesquipedalian if you get me any more of your cognominant gargaristic fumentatious benzaldehyde i'll have you pragmatically arrested i wish i could give gilhooligan's answer but i daren't if it were printed for use in the public schools it would have to be printed almost exclusively in dashes and asterisks but it made the doctor really angry the members of the league held their breaths and gathered round in a circle now knowing that the event of the evening was about to take place a hush the hop-bottom mouth got ready to act the doctor shook his fist again and started in earnest his voice began with calmness and deliberation but soon rose high it swept forth in a majestic declamation full of all sorts of forte staccato and crescendo effects to the noble climax 
See here, you slack-salted, transubstantiated, interdigital germarium, you rantipole, sacrosciatic rock barnacle, you! If you give me any of your caprantipoline, paragastrular, megalopteric jacketation, I'll make a lamellabranchiate gymnomixine parabolic lepidopteroid out of you. What diacritical rite has a binomial oxypendactyle and valtrous holoblastic rhizopod like you got with your trinoctial eustilaginous westphalian holocaust blocking up the teleostean way for anyway if you give me any more of your lunarian snortomaniac hyperbolic pylorectomy i'll skive you into a megalopteric diatomoriferous oxospore you queasy zoroastrian son of a helicopteric hypotrachelium you shut your logarithmic epicycloidal mouth you let this monopolitan macrocosmic helciform procession go by and wait right here in the anagological street and no more of your hedonistic primordial supervirescence you rectangular quillet-eating vice-presidential amoeboid either Mr. Gilhooligan, slowly descended from his dray, approached Dr. Hopbottom and took off his hat. I beg your pardon, sir, he said weakly, but would you mind repeating them last three remarks? I didn't rightly hear. The doctor, with sweat dripping from his yellow cheeks, did it again, and then some. By the time he had finished, the dictionary was pretty well disemboweled. The crowd cheered. I beg your humble pardon, said Gilhooligan, when the doctor had finished. I had no idea it was as bad as that. I take off my hat to you. Man and boy, I have followed the sea for forty years. I have been a Mississippi river pilot. I have run a whaler. I have been the mate of a cockroach schooner, and I've blackbirded all along the west coast of Africa. I know mules, and I know niggers, and how to coax em. But I see a plain seafaring man has no show with a doctor when it comes to exhibiting language in public. I'll say this for you, they ain't your beat for square-rigged black-and-tan cursing in the seven seas, and I think that if this here society what's running this here procession can turn out graduates of the noble art of profanity like you are, I want to say this, give me the pledge and I'll sign it. I need some of your talk in my business. The doctor led the way amidst awed thousands to a great white dray decorated with lilies. There, upon a black walnut reading desk, was exhibited the pledge book, a huge brass-bound tome covered with white vellum. Gilhooligan mounted the dray, and with great effort and much chewing of his tongue he signed his name. A chorus of hurrahs was given, followed by the Chautauqua salute of waving white handkerchiefs. Then, after tying white ribbons to the tails of Gilhooligan's black horses and pinning a pink satin badge two feet long on the breast of Gilhooligan's jumper, the procession parted in the middle. He drove his clanking truckload of railroad iron into the space, and Dr. Hopbottom, victorious, galloped proudly back to the head of the line. Twenty little blue-eyed girls in white muslin were lifted up beside Gilhooligan the convert and as the processions slowly started they set up in their childish treble their marching song angry words oh let them never from the tongue unbridled slip 
may the heart's best impulse ever check them ere they soil the lip fenton laughed freely for the first time that eventful evening his memory of dr hopbottom was still fresh enough in his mind for him to picture the scene what's the doctor up to lately he inquired why the last time i saw him he told me he had some great scheme to make a thousand dollars easy was the reply it seems he's doing a little detective work on the side the train now began to slow down approaching a station fenton glanced out saw the sign wall street and rose to go detective work he inquired hurriedly what did he mean he's looking after some lost boy i believe there's a big reward offered for him and the train had already stopped fenton had no time to hear more and the words bore no meaning for him after he had run out however and had begun to ascend the stairs of the subway exit the words came back like a retarded echo a lost boy a big reward and he stopped suddenly and began to think dr hopbottom after a lost boy perhaps it was he himself fenton the reappearance of mangus o'shea into his life had already stirred up conjectures if it were himself what could it mean well there seemed to be no answer of all the strange questions he had put to himself concerning this night's adventures nothing as yet had any answer for him he seemed destined to go from one mystery to another blindfold of one thing however he was sure the one mystery he most desired to have solved was the riddle who is belcharmion chapter eight